Every day, I walk through the hallway to go to my office, and we have an Employee of the Year prize that takes the photo of those who awarded this prestigious prize. Their portrait hangs on the hallways from the main entrance all the way to my office. Portrait photos that go back to the 1970s. And you can tell because the photos start in black and white, then they become a grainy color, and then they become sharper as we move to the current year. When I look at the faces of some of the people, I know their name. In fact, they sit in high positions above me, working executive jobs and earning lots of money. But as we go back in time, they just become random, forgotten faces. Now, obviously these people worked really hard for the title of Employee of the Year, but I can't help thinking that their work and legacy will pass away, forgotten like the photos of black and white. And so it leads to the question, what are we working for? Are we just working to move up the corporate ladder? And how high should I go? Everyone wants to be at the top. But I tell you in corporations and large departments that those at the top work more than a standard Australian 38 hours per week. If you're a top level executive, expect your weekends to be gone. Depending on your company, you start at 5am and finish at 7 or 8pm. Your mobile phone goes off when a middle manager calls you up about emergency. You get a work laptop so you can check emails at home and after dinner. Oh, and don't worry if you don't want to go to work. There's a company driver who can take you to the office. Effectively, you're staring at a screen and chained to your desk and computer. A modern corporate slave. And why is that? It's because you shoulder more responsibility and make the top-level decisions that could mean the life and death of your company. You can't take a break because of the urgency. And if you slack off, there's plenty of people behind you that can replace you. This is the market that we live in, driven by daily politics, consumer choices, and breaking news. So we're always in emergency management, trying to keep the figurative plane from crashing to the ground. The market, it's a force for good, driving technological innovations and new products through competition but can also force us to look very narrowly at the cheapest options that take advantage over some people. Today, I want to talk about careerism, that is the practice of advancing up the career ladder at all costs. I don't want to put down those who earn it, but I want to give those a heads up and discussing this with you, young people, about what these costs are. We start off with the idea of opportunity costs. It's an economic term that expresses what a person or business loses out on when we choose one option over the other. A decision between our options has been made. So think about this in the social terms. If I have a family trip to go to the beach over the weekend, but my boss comes up to me and says, here's a late notice business trip that needs someone like you on board. And you notice that those dates clash. There is a decision here to be made where you lose an opportunity if you choose the other option. So if I go on a family trip, I get to feel refreshed, make some memories for my partner, kids, or family members. But I might look bad in the eyes of the boss for not helping him out at the critical point and might be passed over for promotion. If I choose the business trip 
or make it look positively for promotion and get a high-paying job with social status and perks, but I lose out on those precious times of family that I won't always get to make again. After all, the kids are only a certain age once, and it's a one time of the year when a family can all be together. Let's think about what are some of the moments that you might miss out on. If you're married, maybe it's spending time with your partner and getting to know them. If you have kids, maybe it's coaching them, helping them with homework, seeing them playing team sport, and watching them grow up. If you're single, maybe you want to be married, get a girl or boyfriend, meet interesting and beautiful people. So why do I bring this up? Because if you've been in the workforce for a while and learn about your colleagues who work there longer and maybe senior to you, you start to learn about their family history. Maybe there's the guy close to retirement with multiple divorces and paying child support and with complicated families. Or maybe there's that guy who's always complaining about his teenage son who's gone to jail and is staying with him like a parasite. He just wants to kick him out. I find it interesting about slogans like work-life balance and family first coming out from the words of executives and bosses when their own families' lives are less than ideal. And it's ironic, because for these people, they spout these slogans of family first and be established leaders in their own workplace. Their own families are a mess. How can you lead a section or department while your own flesh and blood is in a mess? It feels like hypocrisy. One of the things is how we prioritize career and how we have career counselors and career guides and magazines. We worship careers, but we hope that the status and privileges will bring us joy. And so let's have a study, a study on female executives and look at how we can appreciate the opportunity costs. Let's examine the question, how long does it take for women to reach chief executive officer or CEO in a company? So, according to the Harvard Business Review on the article Research, how female CEOs actually get to the top by Sarah Dillard and Vanessa Lipschitz. They analyzed the career paths of 24 women who head Fortune 500 companies, a list produced by Fortune Business Magazine that lists and ranked the top 500 companies in the top by their revenues. For example, there's Mary Barra, CEO of General Motors, Patricia Wartz, CEO of Archer Daniels Midlands, a food processing company, and Heather Bresch, CEO of Mylan, a biotech company that developed the EpiPen. So what did they find? Well, the median duration for women to work at a company in one stint prior to promoting it to CEO is 23 years. The median duration for men is 15 years. And here's an explanation, an extract from their article. It is hard to pass what drives a long tenure inside a path that so many of these women took or why their experiences differ from those of the men. Optimistic interpretations could include supportive organizations, strong mentors, or something intrinsic to the women themselves. On the flip side, Differences between the long stints for women and men could also result from structures that treat women less favorably, from biases that delay promotions to penalties for taking maternity leave. Regardless of the root cause, it seems important to acknowledge that the long climb is a common path for female Fortune 500 CEOs. 
and there's other considerations, such as education, but I know only a few are from Ivy League universities, and few also go through the MBA program. To identify, companies of good corporate culture help you ascend the corporate ladder. And here's another fact. The average age for women CEO is 56. The youngest is 45. So what's the takeaway? High corporate positions require dedication and sacrifice of time. Sometimes you'll be studying university, and sometimes you're doing your postgrad work after work hours. Don't think this is an exception for women, but men seeking this path also go through the same pathway. So the question is, can I have both? That is, both a high-paying job and a family. After all, we have the technology such as IVF. Can women take that as an insurance policy whilst they work in a career? In fact, in 2014, tech giants Apple and Facebook announced that egg freezing as a benefit for female US employees. So let's talk about the IVF process, and we're going to look at a website from the Fertility Clinic in Australia, Adora Fertility, and also the UK government's Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority publication called Egg Freezing and Fertility Treatment, Trends and Figures, 2010 to 2016. We're just trying to understand the process, the monetary costs, and the probability of success. So let's briefly talk about the process. And here's an extract from the UK government on egg freezing. The process involves stimulating, collecting, freezing, and then storing a woman's eggs. The way eggs are collected for egg freezing is the same way as IVF and involves injecting hormones to stimulate ovaries over a few weeks to produce multiple eggs. When the eggs have matured, they're collected from the patient and then frozen. Typically, the process takes around two weeks. There are two methods of freezing eggs. The long-established slow-cooling method or the more recently developed flash freezing method known as vitrification. The traditional method is slower and carries a higher risk of ice crystals forming, which can damage the eggs, which can damage the eggs and result in a lower birth rate. The newer vitrification method is significantly more effective and is now being used widely. And then an extract on egg thawing. When a woman uses frozen eggs in an IVF treatment cycle, this is referred to as egg thawing. The frozen eggs being thawed and used in treatment can either be a patient's own eggs or from a donor. The eggs are thawed and then fertilized through a procedure called intracytoplasmic sperm injection, ICSI, where sperm is injected directly into the egg with a needle. If fertilized, the embryo is transferred to the woman's uterus. And so to look at the egg freezing and thawing process overall, it's 10 to 14 days of hormone injections to stimulate the ovaries and ripen multiple eggs. Then, eggs are removed from the womb. The procedure is usually done under sedation. Then, eggs are immediately frozen and put into storage. And then, when a patient is ready to attempt pregnancy, the eggs are thawed, fertilized, and transferred to the uterus as an embryo. But what about the costs? Let's go for the cheapest criteria, and I'm going to use Australian prices here from Adora. Some of these aren't covered by Medicare, so you have to check with your private insurance. So for the egg freezing cycle, it's $3,800 Australian dollars. Fertility medication per cycle is $1,500. Egg retrieval process is $200 to $1,000. Retrieving means harvesting from the woman, not retrieving them from the freezer. And any subsequent cycles, including egg retrieval, is about $3,200.
There's no prices on thawing, fertilization, and embryo transfer that is available on the website, so you need to send them an inquiry. But according to the UK government, the average cost of elements for a typical egg freezing cycle can be egg collection and freezing, £3,350, medication, 500 to 1,500 pounds, egg storage costs per year, up to 10 years, 125 pounds to 350 pounds per year. Thor cycle and embryo transfer, 2,500 pounds, with a total cost ranging from 7,000 to 8,000 pounds. And then you turn that into Australian dollars, it's about 14,000 to 15,000 Australian dollars. That is storage for up to one year. You're looking at a nice deposit for a house or car loan, or holiday trip. And what's the probability of success? According to the UK government, there is always a risk with IVF that embryos do not develop an implant. When using fresh eggs, there is often the option to undergo another treatment cycle. However, as patients freeze a finite number of eggs, it is important patients recognize that there is no guarantee freezing eggs will lead to a live birth. Some studies have found that patients have unrealistically high expectations of success. Even though birth rates for frozen eggs are increasing in 2016, only around 1 in 4 eggs thaw cycles resulted in birth, or 3 out of 4 cycles thaw treatments did not result in a birth, which is an important risk for prospective patients to consider. And then when you look at the DORA website, they pull out a graph from the research paper of Goldman et al., predicting the likelihood of live birth for elective oocyte cryopreservation, a counseling tool for physicians and patients' human reproduction, 2017. So what does this graph look like? On a horizontal axis, it goes from the ages under 35. It increments by one year to age 44 years old. Then there's the vertical axis of probability of having at least one live birth from 0% to 100%. The graph there tells you what your chances are of success of giving birth through a woman undergoing egg freezing and thawing in the middle to late age. In addition, they also illustrate the probability when you go harvest more than one batch of 10 eggs. I think it's related to one cycle of harvesting. The research examines probability when you harvest 10, 20, 30, and 40 eggs. So what is a graph picture? Well, when you're young and under 35, it represents the best chance of pregnancy from 70% to almost 99%. Then the bars of success drop with each age as you grow older. It represents the best chance of pregnancy from 70% to almost 99%. Then the bars of success drop from each age as you grow older. So when you're 40 years old, it's roughly 30% to 80%. When you're 44 years old, it's about 8% to 27%. Obviously, the more cycles you go through, you increase your success, but you also pay more for each subsequent cycle. And your eggs can't be frozen forever. The UK puts a restriction of up to 10 years from harvest. The overall story isn't surprising. You're better off getting pregnant at a younger age. You can pay more from 15000 to roughly $60,000, to have the best success by your fighting biology. For me, it seems so silly that you're trying to strive up the corporate ladder for success and try to also keep that dream of having a family. When a family asks, what are you doing with your life? And you respond with, I'm working on my career. I don't really have time to see anyone. 
we think we're being smarter by buying insurance and paying large sums of money since we think it's all worth it in the end. But I've told you that the chances are late in life, 8 to 27%. You want to spend money on those odds? Isn't it funny that we're effectively throwing away money that won't work to have that dream of more money and to social success and family in the future? How about raising family at that peak age and then going for an interesting job? That sounds way cheaper, and once you're an empty nester, there's plenty of time. Why would you want to be a new mom at age 44? You want to juggle being a CEO and new mom? Chances are you're going to spend more money by putting them to daycare and letting someone else take care of the child that you spent so much money on. So my question to you is, do you like gambling with those odds? Why play with biology and dump your money when you naturally have the ability at a young age? You can't buy more time. And let's also not ignore the horror stories when a Washington Post article by IVF titled The Struggle to Conceive with Frozen Eggs, which tracks career women. In particular, one lady who is the poster girl for Bloomberg Business Week under the headlines, Freeze Your Eggs, Free Your Career, which I do encourage you to read. And so, quote, Bridget Adams remembers feeling a wonderful sense of freedom after she froze her eggs in her late 30s, despite the $19,000 costs. Her plan was to work for a few more years, find a great guy to marry, and still have a house full of her own children. Things didn't turn out the way she hoped. In early 2017, with her 45th birthday looming, and no sign of Mr. Wright, she decided to have a family of her own. She excitedly unfroze the 11 eggs she had stored and selected a sperm donor. Two eggs failed to survive the thawing process. Three more failed to fertilize. That left six embryos, of which five appeared to be abnormal. The last one was implanted in the uterus. On the morning of March 7th, she got the devastating news that it, too, had failed. Adams was not pregnant and her chances of carrying her genetic child had dropped to near zero. Shimmer screaming like a wild animal, throwing books, papers, a laptop, and collapsing to the ground. It was one of the worst days of my life. There were so many emotions. I was sad. I was angry. I was ashamed, she said. I questioned, why me? What did I do wrong? And then moving to another part of the article... On average, a woman freezing 10 eggs at age 36 has a 30-60% to 60% chance of having a baby with them, according to published studies. The odds are higher for younger women, but they drop precipitously for older women. They also go up with the number of eggs stored, as do the costs, but the chance of success varies so wildly by individual that reproductive specialists say it's nearly impossible to predict the outcome based on aggregate data. A number of Adam's friends were also early adopters of egg freezing. Today, they are facing a similar reckoning. Amy West, 43, a professor in Los Angeles who attended a DC's area Sidwell Friends school growing up, is one of the lucky ones. She had a baby boy 22 months ago and had numerous eggs left over. Carolyn Gorig Lee, 46, a nurse from Haymarket, froze 25 eggs and planned to have a large family with them. She successfully gave birth to twins, but the other eggs were abnormal or lost to miscarriage. Then there is Mei Mei Fox. After the 44-year-old Honolulu-based writer got married, she tried to use her frozen eggs. 
the whole batch of 18 was destroyed while being shipped from one clinic to another. So can I point out the absurdity of it all? Why are we sacrificing so much time and money to beat biology and have a kid at a later age? If we're going up the ladder to earn money and status, why not save some of that money and go dating and have kids earlier? And that's the question we often hear by the media, magazine colonists, and activists is we need more women on the board directors. We need to make it equal. And what they mean is 50% male, 50% female. Or even for radical activists, they think it's better to replace the patriarchy and have more females than males. Companies will fund freezing treatment to get you to that top position. Interlude. You know, we've talked a lot about IVF and career women. I think being a CEO is a noble path, worthy of respect and awe. But I think for most people, we don't have careers, we have jobs. We don't live for work, we work to live. And so the cultural absurdity that we spend thousands of dollars and sacrifice our prime years for these jobs doesn't make sense to me. And I think it's a prime example of thinking we have it all and believing that throwing money at a problem will solve it. In this case, as the UK government puts it, some patients have unrealistic expectations. And so we need to be very careful as diligent stewards of our life and time. And I'm no exception. I'm just as weak as you. I remember passing my time in the school holidays on the video games. Then, as we approached the end of holidays, I realized these video games is just a fantasy. No one cares about my high school. But I can always make a new start and make the best use of whatever time I have left. I say this because I met so many people approach their late 20s and 30s waking up and realizing that, oh, I forgot to get married, or what on earth am I doing with my life? That the job that eats up my Saturdays and Sundays is so draining and meaningless? There's always a new spot fire that pops up and I need to put it out. So yesterday's problems is old problems. And I think for young women, this is a problem that hits them harder physically and mentally because we can't stop biology. If we're lucky, we can delay it at a cost and with good fortune. But it's also insane that sometimes the people pushing this narrative, it's also insane that sometimes the people pushing this narrative aren't the ones walking this path. That sometimes mothers will look at envy at career women. But I think it's just a phase. When a reality hits you with a never ending work week and the pressure to make the right decisions late at night, it's nothing really envious. And so when I reverse engineer my life and look at the end, that is my deathbed, I don't want to be surrounded by my subordinates and employees. I want my family to be there and the comfort that my own lineage will continue in this harsh reality of life. The black and white photos are forgotten, collecting dust, and thousands of people walk past them, not even giving them a glance. Even the people I work for who have their photos up there won't even give themselves a second glance. If you're a man and you're listening to this wondering what's all this IVF talk about, I think it's important to recognize that we have a role to play in our family's life. That being a father and parent is temporary, and kids will grow up and move on. Or, if you listen to enough sub-stories in lunchrooms, the neglected kids that we spent nurturing whilst at work somehow move back with you and leech off you. And that's the opportunity cost when raising a man or woman, but leaving behind a sport child who is never disciplined, and it has its consequences. Perhaps it's a generational thing, 
but our grandfathers and fathers would dedicate their work life to usually one company, and usually go through the ranks. But I think with the high divorce rate and blended family arrangements, this generation and a generation behind me have seen what happens when our career and social status is our number one goal in life, and we don't want to make the same mistakes. That, unfortunately, for some of us, we are often a product of a generation neglected by our career-driven fathers and mothers, and we have heard, seen, or experienced the consequences. And so I record this that you, young men, and young women will listen. Think and see if my words correspond to reality, to challenge it. What do you think of that high-flying colleague of yours? What happens when you peel back the layers of career success and start to look at them in the role as husbands or wife, fathers or mothers? Are they happy? Would you want a spouse like them? Was their life decision worth it? Or will you scream like Adams when she first found out that her chances of pregnancy were almost zero and you beat in your chest saying, why me? Not understanding that you made these choices when you were young and thought you were the exception. The question for me when I reflect is the insane workload of any executive isn't why are there more female executives? It's why would any sane person choose those jobs? Those are the most competitive and ruthless jobs and you need to be on your game or else you'd be easily replaced. Jordan Peterson made this comment while doing Q&A with his students. The world celebrated Apple's founder and CEO Steve Jobs for being a technological visionary and for bringing us personal computers into homes and pockets, revolutionizing technology and his final years dominating the smartphone market. However, Steve Jobs also paid the opportunity cost to keep Apple competitive against its rivals of Google and Samsung. He would have to sacrifice time at home to be in the office. He resigned from Apple as CEO on the 24th of August 2011 and then would die from health complications on the 5th of October 2011, as he was a cancer survivor previously. The New York Times wrote about Jobs' last day, where he succumbed to complications from cancer. Mr. Jobs spent his final weeks, as he had spent most of his life, in tight control of his choices. He invited a close friend, the physician Dean Ornish, a preventative health advocate, to join him for sushi at one of his favorite restaurants, Jinsho in Palo Alto. He said goodbye to longtime colleagues, including the venture capitalist John Doerr, the Apple board member Bill Campbell, and the Disney chief executive Robert A. Eager. He offered Apple's executives advice on unveiling the iPhone 4S, which occurred on Tuesday. He spoke to his biographer, Walter Isaacson. He started a new drug regime and told some friends that there was reason for hope. But mostly, he spent time with his wife and children, who will now oversee a fortune of at least $6.5 billion. And in addition to their grief, take on responsibility for tending to the legacy of someone who is as much a symbol as a man. And to move later down in the extract, Mr. Jobs' biographer, Mr. Isaacson, whose book will be published in two weeks, asked him why so private a man had consented to the questions of someone writing a book. I wanted my kids to know me, Mr. Jobs replied. Mr. Isaacson wrote, Thursday in an essay on time.com. I wasn't always there for them, 
and I wanted them to know why and to understand what I did. I found it interesting that he commissioned a professional biographer to write a story and his response was to let his kids know him because he wasn't always there. And so the world is in awe with Steve Jobs that we know. But the darker side of his family was that he wasn't able to spend precious time even after surviving cancer. It becomes a big tragedy that he wasn't able to spend his retirement bonding with his kids because he died six weeks from resigning as an Apple CEO. And so for the men out there, Careerism doesn't just affect women, but us as men. I'm not saying you should lower ambition or level of success, but you need to personally define for yourself what it means to be successful. Think about your deathbed and the last thoughts. Will it be, I wish I did more work and submitted more reports? Or will it be remembering the faces of your loved ones? This thing comes to you in moments of suffering and crisis. It burns away at the things we can live without and only those invaluable things matter. And so what's the takeaway? That is, look at the people in senior positions above you. Can you and your dependents afford to have you work and meet the demands of those jobs? Figure out your life. We have access to career counsellors in schools and universities, but we don't have life counsellors. These are your parents and grandparents who don't just educate, but guide and grant wisdom. Next, define what success means. Don't let the corporate HR department give you the cookie-cutter career. That is, do these positions and courses and move into this job. Then, understand opportunity costs when you're young so you don't regret it. Wrestle with the question, can you have it all? Think about Bridget Adams, her desire to be in a high-flying position and also try to raise a family. Remember, you only have one life here on Earth, and we can talk about the next life in another podcast but you can't buy more time and you leave your money behind you when you die. And I'll finish with a quote from Billy Graham. When wealth is lost, nothing is lost. When health is lost, something is lost. When character is lost, all is lost. Thank you for listening to A Fire in the Desert, the mini episode. One, careerism. Music, outfoxing the fox, by Kevin McLeod at IncomeTech.com.